Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Awesome. Good to be uh, good to be with you. Good to be with you. Uh, happy Mother's Day to uh, to the moms in the room and. Uh, Isaiah 61, that's kind of where I want to get a Bible. Isaiah 61, just one verse, verse one. And uh, the reason I want to share that with you is because I think there are a lot of um, uh, Bible verses that could define a life. And, uh, and when Brent graciously asked me to come speak with you guys today, uh, I thought, okay, well, if I can kind of give a few big ideas from one Bible passage, it might be uh, the best thing I could do for you. Because what I want to do is kind of equip you to be able to say, what would I define my life by? And there's a lot of passages. So I'm very grateful to be here. And thank you so much um, for, for having me all the way from, from Vancouver. And I'll share a bit of, you know, what Jesus is doing in my life, um, because hopefully it'll be an encouragement to you. Um, Isaiah 61 is an interesting um, chapter of scripture. Uh, right at the beginning in verse 1, he says this. So what I want to break down for you is the, 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 the how and the why and the what of, of a meaningful life. Some of you are looking for meaning and purpose in your life. You don't really have it. You don't know where to get it. You're looking at it with your family and you're saying, I want to try to derive meaning from my family. I want to try to derive meaning from my marriage. I want to try to derive meaning from being a mom. I want to have fulfillment in my life through having more money, more square footage, more vacation time, a better job more success. All of these things are things that you pine after, but the reality is Jesus comes around and he says, listen, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If, in fact, I'm the only one who gives a deep and meaningful life, and if you haven't found your life in Jesus yet, then you haven't found life, and that's really the big idea of what I want to share with you, and at the beginning of Isaiah 61, in verse 1, he says this, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. So what I want to start with is when we ask the question of how you're going to have a meaningful life. The how is that it has to be a life lived by the spirit of the living God. Now, what I mean by that is, um, is some of you are here and you're hoping to be able to find kind of, uh, the reason people come to church, I started a church with 16 people in my room. And when I love in my, in my, uh, not in my bedroom, my, my, my living room, because uh, <laughs> that'd be weird. Uh, and, and, uh, and, you know, the reality is, even when I looked at their faces, it's like, what's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Where am I going to find it? How am I going to live a living meaningful life? How am I going to live a life of power? How am I going to live a life where I'm actually accomplishing great things in the world? And what, and what we tend to do is we tend to think, well, there must be little secrets that I can get and little secret sauce and little things I can do. And then if I do A plus B plus C, that'll mean a meaningful life if I do this. And we kind of get involved and we think it's going to be our strength and our power. Uh, and, and some of you actually need to hear that. You need to actually hear that you do need to work a little harder because you're kind of mailing it in with, in regard to Christianity. You're here, you maybe go to church, maybe you write a check every once in a while, but beyond that, you don't really know Jesus. You're kind of just going through life. And some of you need to actually work harder. You need to lean in. You need to go, okay, what am I actually doing with my life? This is why the apostle Paul gives the, when he, when he's writing to Timothy and giving images of Christianity, he says, you, you got to be like a soldier, uh, an athlete, a farmer. None of those images are lazy people. None of those none of those images mail it in. All those, you're getting up early, you're disciplined, you're working out, you're, you're a soldier. Meaning, I don't know if you know this, but we're in the midst of a war. That's the image. Right, I got, I, got, uh, I got three daughters, okay, 12, 10, and eight, and that's a war. Uh, but <laughs> the reality is, uh, I try to raise my daughters in the ways of Jesus. And my, I don't come from a Christian home. And so when I tell my kids about Jesus, when I pray with them at night, when I read them the scriptures at night, uh, my family, my own family looks at me and says, Mark, don't you know that you're brainwashing your kids? 
when you do that. You're, you're brainwashing them in the ways of Jesus. Why don't you let them? And I, every time someone says that to me, you know what I say? I say, you're darn right I am. Because if I don't, then Beyonce will, all right? All right, if I don't, Grey's Anatomy will, because it'll tell them this is what sexuality is. This is what womanhood is. This is what power is. And my job is to wash them in an alternative way of the world, to actually look at them and say, no, no, actually, biblically, this is what womanhood is. This is what money's for. This is how sexuality, this is how meaning works. This is what existence is about. And so you are in the midst of a war at every moment. That's why Paul gives these images. And so some of you really do need to work harder. You need to go, you know what? I got to, uh, Dallas Willard said, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. You know, you can't earn your salvation, which is what I'm going to talk about, but it's not opposed to effort. It's not opposed to leaning in and working harder and going, okay, I need a wake up call. I need to reset. I need to actually reprioritize things in my life. And maybe that's you today. That's the reality. But what he says here is the only way you're going to have power in your life, the only way anything meaningful is going to happen in your life, is if you stop trusting to your own power as opposed to new age philosophy, which tells you, find yourself, go inside yourself, you know, find your true self, go inside of you. Christianity comes along and goes, no, 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 the only way to life is to deny yourself and to live in what? The power of the spirit. That's his point. That you, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. That's his point. That the only way you're going to have power in your life is to stop depending on your own power and depend on the spirit. And listen, some of you, you're, you're like, man, you don't know though. You don't know me. Uh, God could never use me. He, what he just said is it's the power of the spirit to do anything in your life. Some of you are like, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I did yesterday. You don't know how bad a person I am. You don't know how useless I am. Listen, I am the poster boy for God could never use me. I was telling the guys at the, at the, um, at the men's conference yesterday about a bit of my story. I grew up in a very atheistic home to the point where my own father, so never, never any church, never any uh, Bible, no prayer, nothing growing up. I walked into a church for the first time when I was 19 years old. And the only reason I stayed was because there was pretty girls there. All right, there was a girl singing up front because right, I was like, I don't want to go to church, all right? It's going to be shag carpets, smell like mothballs. The average age is going to be 200 years old. I do not want to go to church at all. I got my own life. I'm in school. I'm partying with girls. I'm smoking weed. This is my life. I'm happy. I'm fulfilled. And then I walked into a church and there was a girl singing up front. And I was like, oh man, praise Jesus. I love church, all right? This is legit. <laughs> I'm going to stay here, right here. This is my place, this is my pocket, right? So the reality is that was my life. And my dad was so atheistic that he named my older brother Matthew, but told my mom that we had to spell his name with one T because he didn't want it to be biblical. So literally my brother's name on his license is Matthew with one T. Four years later, they had me and called me Mark. So clearly the guy didn't catch the irony of this, all right? <laughs> Like if I had another brother, he'd be like, Luke, I think Luke's a great name, right? <laughs> My dad had never picked up a Bible, never gone, to, he was antagonistic toward Christianity. That's the reality of, of the world I grew up in. And so I grew up always as a skeptic. And I don't know if that's some of you, that's many of you probably. Even if you say you believe in Jesus, you still have skepticism. That was my world growing up. I've always been what's called an evidential thinker. That was, my, that was the world I came from. When my, uh, the reality is how, I, 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 I mean, my, my daughter, 12 years old, the other day she said, I wanna go out with my, see now she's getting to the point where she leaves my presence, which I hate. 
right? So she's like, I want to go out with my friend and walk to the store. And I'm like, walk to the store. That does not sound like something to this point in your life that's a thing, all right? You're like in my presence at all times. Now you're 12. And I'm like, I'm not liking this. She's like, I'm going to walk to the store with my friend. I'm like, I don't know. So I talked to my wife. I'm like, I don't like this idea. And my wife's like, we need to give her her freedom. She's got to kind of come in. And so I said, okay, so what I'll do is I'll follow her. Because I'm a... So, so my wife's like, you can't follow her. Are you kidding me? If she finds out you followed her, all right, we're done. You, can, you cannot do that. And, and she's going to hate her. And I'm like, okay, you know, I, I, fine. And then my wife's like, and I'm like, okay, did you just wink at me because you're telling me to follow her? And she's like, no, my goodness, Mark, that's the silliest thing. You cannot follow her no matter what you do. You cannot follow her. And I'm like, okay. What's going on right now? So you want me to, no, you cannot, absolutely not follow her. You cannot follow her. I'm like, all right, I'm confused. I'm just going to go. So she was walking with her friend and I got in a van and I, I was like that guy, all right? And in the big van with the big round circle window, I'm like, ah, right? And I drove around and I'm like parked in the parking lot watching her from afar. And I'm sitting at this like pizza joint just watching her and her friend walk to the drugstore and they got their little Slurpees or whatever. And I'm watching them and the guy's like, do you want pizza? I'm like, get out of my face right now, right? I'm busy. Uh, I'm an evidential thinker. I've always been, I need evidence to believe anything, right? That's just my world. And so when a guy, when I was 18 years old and Chris Watt walks up to me in woodworking class, starts telling me about Jesus, I needed to study the history, the philosophy. I needed to study the literature. I needed to understand scientifically. And what I started to do was explore like some of you, and I started to realize that Christianity is the best idea in the marketplace of ideas. Scientifically, I started exploring the reality that the, everyone thought that the deeper science delved into uh, realities of the world, that more atheism would rise. And people would say, oh, we don't need to believe in God anymore. We don't care about this stuff. But as science has delved into it, what we've realized in biology, um, uh, cosmology, the, the reality of science, it's actually created more evidence for the existence of God. That we began to realize... Listen, thousands of years ago, people would say, uh, okay, uh, everything that begins to exist has to have a cause, right? We know that. Everything that begins to exist, like if you, be you, you began to exist at some point in this room, every single one of you, all right, it's Mother's Day, right? That's why we began to exist, all right? At one point, your mom and your dad looked at each other, the mood was right, all right? And some of you are like, all right? So, but every single one of you exists because you began to exist at a particular time. Well, anything that begins to exist has to have a cause. So everyone through thousands of years of philosophy would say, well, that, the universe is the uncaused, eternal, non-contingent reality. We don't need an explanation for the universe because it's been around forever. And that was great until the 1920s when Edwin Hubble looked through his telescope and realized that all the planets were receding and that space itself was moving apart. And that he rewound the clock and found out that the universe, actually all space, time, matter, all came into existence in a single moment. And so the reality was everything that begins to exist has to have a cause. The universe we know scientifically began to exist right across the board. It began to exist. Well, now the universe has to have a cause. And what is it? It can't be matter because matter began to exist at a particular time. It has to be what Jesus says. God is spirit. It has to be mind, something non-material, but something that's organized, something that built DNA, which has been called the language of God. And so the reality is the more science delved into it, they began to realize there's actually great reasons for theism, the reality of God. There's great reasons for theism for lots of mor morality. The fact that you know 
the difference between right and wrong is a massive evidential pointer to the existence of God. See, for me, I began being bothered by the fact that I had objective morals. I knew rape was wrong. I knew killing people was wrong. I knew, go- I knew, I, I knew certain things were right and wrong, but where had I gotten it? You and I know that there's morals. And if anyone ever, because we live in a very relativistic culture, right? So people say, oh no, your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. There's no such thing as objective reality. Anyone ever says that to you, just like chop their neck. And then when they go, why'd you do that? Go, dude, don't project your values on me, bro. That's how I feel good about myself. All right, because the reality is, who told, who told you that I can't chop you in the neck? There's no objective. Listen. Uh, I, so when I moved to Vancouver, there's this, uh, so I live about eight minutes from the border. Okay. So I'm always going through the border. So when I first moved there, I didn't understand. You guys have Nexus. You guys know what Nexus is? All right. So this Nexus is like this special card that you get if you travel a lot so you can go through the lines. All right. So I have one of these now. And so like at the airport, like I just walk past all the peasants. All right. I'm just like, hello. And they're all like, all right. They're in a line. I'm like, Nexus. And so And so when I first moved to Vancouver, though, I didn't know about Nexus. And so I got there and I went to cross the border and there was a three-hour lineup in the normal peasant lane. And then there was the Nexus lane. It was totally open. And I didn't know what Nexus was. I'm like, I don't know. That's an open lane. I'm rammed in here. I'm getting out of here. So I just jumped into the Nexus lane and I shot down the Nexus lane. I drove by three hours of traffic, got to the end and pulled in. And I got to the end. I'm like, oh, I'm not Nexus. So I just like, a little gap came and I just pulled right and I just cut right in line. All right. Now, at that point, I looked in my rearview mirror, and no joke, there were three massive guys, all right, in their truck together. They'd just been hunting. Like, they definitely had killed something. And they were big, and they were in this pickup truck. And I look in the rear view. I'm like, oh, snap, this is going to be. And they're mad, all right? They're like, what the God? And they're jacked up. And I'm like, now, when you're my size and someone's mad at you, there's two things that you do. Okay, one is you run, which was not an option. So two is you have to act crazy. So... So I put my car in park, true story, and I got out of my car and I walked up to their car, like, what's going on, right? And they like did up their window really quick, all right? They're like, ah, and I'm like, yeah, that's right, all right? Get back and they're like, okay. If you're gonna tell me there's no such thing as objective moral values, just try cutting off someone in line and see if they believe in right and wrong at that moment. See, the reality is every one of us has morals. But if you know the difference between objective moral values, you need an objective moral law giver. You need someone to tell you that this is wrong and this is wrong. And it has to transcend nature because there's lots of things in nature that go really bad and we would never have actually, from our cognitive faculties, deduced a whole bunch of things about morality from nature. There's things that we do and believe that are vastly different. So nature is not a good, so you have to deal with the moral value question. And then I started dealing with the question of evil and suffering. And I started to realize there was so much evil and suffering in the world, so how could God exist? But every time I went to use that argument, the reality is that I had a category called evil and suffering and it bit back because where did I get this category to begin with? If you want to put God on trial for allowing so much evil and suffering, you have a problem. It's actually a pointer to the existence of God, not away from him. Because where did you even get the category called evil and suffering through which you're putting him on trial? You need someone to tell you that. Nature would never tell you something is evil. Animals don't have self-consciousness, all right? They don't, they don't consider their place in the universe. They just, stuff happens. Zebras don't sit around and go, oh, you know, a lion kills a zebra. That's it. The zebras move on. They don't go, what did that all mean? I don't know what it means. What is my place in the universe? I wonder about my place in the universe. I just don't know. They don't do that. 
They're just eating and other stuff, all right? So you would never, you would be way more animalistic than you are. Something about na- something above nature that transcends nature had to come in and actually give you a moral value. I started dealing with the reality of the early church and the, and the rise of the early church. I started dealing with the, I started looking into the resurrection of Jesus and the fact that out of everything, this was the best explanation for the rise of the church. This was the best explanation for the historical data, which is what we want. We want to run the ramp of reason before taking the leap of faith. We want to be people who are smart. We don't want to, see, this is what classically happens is you watch the news and you have like a really smart Oxford professor on the one hand, this is the classic dichotomy, and then you have dumb People on the end, and it's like, hey, Oxford professor representing atheism. Hello, I'm here. And then it's like, and then we have Joe. And Joe's like, hey, and he's got three teeth and he lives in a swamp in Mississippi. And you're like, I'm a Christian. I'm like, oh, this is not a good plan. All right. So we actually want to be people who think. We want to be people who use our brains. We want to be people. So I started looking at the evidence and I started realizing, man, historically, the resurrection of Jesus, if it's true, it has to derail my life. I have to be confronted by it. Because the reality is, I was watching Discovery Channel sitting down in my basement trying to come up with better explanations for the resurrection of Jesus. And every Easter, they would do these like fascinating things. Here's the re- real thing that Jesus, what happened. And what they say is that Jesus went on a cross called the swoon theory and then he didn't really die. He just kind of passed out. And then the Romans took him down and threw him over here. And then he, you know, a few days later, listen, what I began to realize is that the Roman empire knew how to do anything. It was kill people, right? They would kill 6,000 people on a single day. They didn't tend to take guy. I think he's dead. Joe, take him down. All right. Throw him over here. Ooh, I was close. All right. <laughs> I am risen. All right. That is not a legit explanation for the resurrection of Jesus at all. And I began going, well, what would be? And then I began exploring the Bible. I began reading the New Testament. I would sit around. I was a smoker. I loved smoking. And so all I would do was sit outside. When I started to become a Christian, two years before I ever walked to church, I would just sit outside and smoke my cigarettes, hang out with my friends, and read the Bible. And I would sit. I was actually, I remember smoking weed in this guy's garage. And 30 of us, and then I, I became a Christian. Four weeks later, I'm back in the guy's garage, now defending Christianity to 30. I mean, I'm still high because the garage door's down, but I'm defending Christianity. <laughs> I'm defending Christianity, all right, to all these people because I would sit and I would just read the Bible and I'd tell people about Jesus. And, and what I began to read, and I'd read the New Testament, and what I would see is all these crazy things about it that if it was made up, it doesn't make any sense because that's a classic skeptical rebuttal that the New Testament's a made-up document. The early disciples got together, they created stories, and then they wrote them down. But again, realizing there's all kinds of counterproductive content in the Gospels that if you were creating a religion, you would never put in there. You would never put in the stories about Jesus walking into villages, and then they write, he could not do a miracle there. What do you mean he could not? He could not do a miracle there. You don't write that in if you're creating a superstar hero that you never want anybody to doubt. You never put in the story about him crying in the garden and saying, I don't even want to do this mission anymore. Please, somebody take this. Father, take this from me. I don't even want to do it anymore. Don't do that. Don't show the doubt. Make him like Braveheart. All right, just like rides in on the horse, just like, I'm coming for you. No doubt in his eyes. He's going to slay you and you don't even doubt it. Make Jesus like that. Don't have him doubting his mission. Don't have him not knowing stuff. People walk up to Jesus and they're like, hey, listen, aren't you God? Read Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13. When are you coming back? He's like, I don't know. What? 
you just spent 24 chapters convincing me that you're God. Yes, so you're God. I'm God. All-knowing, all-powerful. Yep, I've arrived. Okay, when are you coming back? <laughs> no idea. <laughs> Delete that. Don't put that in there. But over and over and over again, you have counterproductive over. And I began realizing, I actually started to get convinced mentally of the evidential realities of Christianity, that this is the best idea in the marketplace of ideas. That if you have to explore and choose, which is all everybody needs to do, you need to evaluate the evidence and begin to realize that if Jesus was who he said he was, this all began to confront me. And so the reality was, I grew up in this weird world. My dad, and, and some of you were like, I could never do anything great with my life. And what I'm telling you is the only way you're ever going to do anything great in your life, you begin to explore the evidence. The spirit comes into your life and gives you the kind of power that you could never imagine to do things that you weren't even built for. That weren't even part of the, like, listen, when my parents, my parents got divorced when I was nine years old. And at that time, um, I developed something called Tourette syndrome. That's why uh, when you look up here, I kind of tweak in my face around and my body twitches around or whatever. So at nine or 10 years old, the trauma of my parents' divorce caused me to get Tourette syndrome and obsessive compulsive disorder. Now, I don't know if you guys know what Tourette syndrome is, but here's the reality about Tourette's. It's a way not to be cool in high school, all right? <laughs> like literally, I would do these crazy habits where I would just swear randomly, all right? I'd just be like, F, or I'd just be standing around, like not the letter F. I'm just, you're nice Christian people. So I'm just, I just, ah, like I just say the word F, like just randomly at a bus stop, just F. Now, here's the one job you're never gonna get in your life when you randomly throw F bombs around, all right? A pastor, right? <laughs> just ain't gonna work. Everyone's gonna get confused. Church will be 18A, no one's allowed in. You gotta check cards to get in. I'm glad you're here. Happy F, Mother's Day. All right, it's not going to work. It ain't going to work. But here's the reality. God uses you not because of you, but in spite of you. I took a job that I was not equipped for. I'm still not equipped for it. Don't tell my church. I'm not. I don't even know what I'm doing. I started a church in Vancouver, now you got our son about Vancouver. Uh, God called me, I wanted to be there for two years. It rains a lot and I hate rain. And I'm like, I just, wanna, I just wanna move. And he's like, no, I want you to stay here and plant a church. I'm like, start a church. No one in Vancouver cares about Jesus. Why would I wanna start a church? So this is really gonna suck because we're gonna start a church. See, everybody in Vancouver is spiritual, but they don't like, they, they, think that, they think that if you wear Lululemon pants and eat kale and carry a water bottle that you're con connected to the universe, all right? That's their, that's their philosophy. So now I've got to start a church and tell them that their vague spirituality actually isn't a thing. And so I started with 16 people in our house and just with this plan. And everybody said, you can't plant a church in uh, the, the way you're only, the only way you're going to plant a church in Vancouver, the only way it works in Canada is everyone's sick of being told what to do and what's true and what's not true. And, and so what you need to do is you need to just plant a church and talk in pear-shaped tones and Canadian. So it's like, hey, you're here. You have ideas. I have ideas. We all have ideas. <laughs> Sorry. I'm glad you're here. 
soft sell is the only thing that's going to work, which sucked because that's not my jam. Like I was like, oh, nothing would sound more boring to me than soft selling people on the gospel. Nothing. And so I just said, what, what about the opposite of that? And I started a church at, 20, at 29 years old with running shoes and a hoodie on, and I would just preach through biblical books, verse by verse by verse by verse. Like literally, it t- I just got out of a series in Matthew. It took three and a half years to get through the gospel of Matthew for our church. Like, I just do like, how, like, I'd just be like, okay, Bible reading, and, okay, here's the thing about and, all right, it's crazy, all right? And I would just like riff for 20 minutes on the word and, all right? And I would just look out at them and say, listen, you're all a disaster. You're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, depraved, narcissistic, selfish, turned in on yourself, sinners, but it's a good thing that Jesus isn't. You are not the hero of your own life. Jesus is. And they'd all be like, no, this is so offensive. I'm going to go get my friend. All right. And then they'd go. (laughs) And their friend would show up and they'd meet Jesus and they'd get free of crazy addictions and their marriage would get healed. And we started baptizing people. Crazy stuff started to happen. Crazy stuff. Stuff that you couldn't imagine. We we did a, uh, we did um, uh, an event called, uh, we, we gathered as a church in a park. Uh, one, one day, we still do it, one day every summer. Uh, it's creatively called Church in the Park. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and we, we do this thing, we just preach and tell people about Jesus. And, and the reality is, uh, a couple years ago, we had about 30 people lined up for baptism. And by the time the day, I mean, I got up and I just told people about Jesus. I just said, you're sinful, you're wrecked. I can't believe you're, you even got here and got your pants on. You're such a wreck. Your life is a disaster. The one thing about you is you are so selfish, so sinful. You replace God every day in your life. And the reality is you should stop trying to be the hero of your life like New Age Philosophy tells you and make Jesus the hero of your life. He's the only perfect person. You need to give your life to Jesus. You need to repent of sin. All right, the wrath of God was meted out on him for all of these things. And we started baptizing people and 30 people were lined up to get baptized that day. By the end of the day, 96 people had been baptized. We, t- we got grandmas coming up in their like floral dresses. All right. Just being like, I need to give my life to you. We had, we had a, one couple walk by. They're in the tank with me. I'm like, what's your story? They're like, I was at, we're at our friend's house last night. We're at this crazy party. We were hammered. We're coming home. We slept on the floor. We're walking home. And literally like, I'm still hung over but I heard you talk about Jesus and we want to get our life right and we want to give our life to Jesus and I'm in the tank with them. I'm like, you're dry. I don't even know if this is legit. I'm like, go, go, go. Right? Just get out of here. I don't want anything to do. There's been moments at our church I can't, there is no explanation outside this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. That's it. When the spirit shows up, all you can do is play keep up. That's it. Listen, I've done, I remember a year or so ago, I got up now. Here's the thing about uh, pastors. We don't always feel like doing this job. I don't know if you know that. All right. I mean, your pastor, Brett, he loves to do this. I, there's days I don't. All right. There's days I show up to church and I'm like, I don't even like any of these people. What am I even doing here? And there was a day about a year ago, I was sitting side stage and I'm like, man, I don't want to preach today. I'm not in the mood. And I just walked out. I was in a bad mood. You ever been in a bad mood at work? Yeah, but you don't have to come up on a stage and like show up. So I was in one of those, all right? And so I literally did like a Jonah sermon. You know, Jonah like went to the Nineveh. He didn't even want any of them to repent. He hated all of them. And so I did one of those. I'm like, God hates you. Figure it out. I don't know. Let's <laughs> walk off stage. And I'm literally, <laughs> and I'm literally in a meeting 
on that Tuesday with our admin team, and the, the girl, Kristen, she's like, um, so what happened on Sunday? I wasn't there. I'm like, what? And she's like, well, we're going to have to train our ushers in leading people to Christ. I'm like, why? She's like, I don't know what you said, but there was like 20 people that just walked up to ushers randomly and just said, can someone lead me to Jesus? I don't even, and I'm like, our ushers are trained like this, bucket, all right, that's it. That's the training they have, all right? That's as deep as it goes. So now we gotta train our ushers to lead people to Jesus from bad sermons, why? Because the spirit of the Lord God showed up, that's why. And when the spirit blows, and does his thing, all you can do is try. Why would he take a kid from a broken home with, with nothing but, but ridiculous things to say to a group of people and turn it in to something? And he can do the same thing in your life. You're sitting here like, I'm not worthy. I couldn't do anything. Listen, if he can use me, he can use anybody. How... The how is the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. That is how you're going to live a fulfilled life at all. Okay, what is the what of your life? What, is the, what should be the what? When you wake up in the morning, you got the how, which is the power of the spirit. What is the what? The what? And nobody's going to tell you this, by the way. Everyone's going to tell you it's about you. It's about your life. It's about what you can accomplish. Here's what Isaiah says. Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord God has anointed me to do something, right? To do something, to bring good news to the poor. What's the word good news? That's the word gospel, right? That's the word gospel. Now, we got to understand about the gospel. It's very interesting uh, and very important point that the gospel needs to become the what of your life, meaning the, not, not a message about God generically. Some of you, you're here and you believe in God. That means nothing. All right, I mean, it means something, but it doesn't mean anything in regard to the specific nature of what I'm asking you to actually believe about God. See, lots of people have different concepts. Everybody in Vancouver believes in God, right? Everybody has their, but that's deism. They believe, they believe in the Bette Midler God, right? From a distance, yes, is on around. All right, this guy's loving it. All right, so... <laughs> All right, the, the from a distance God, they spun the world around, he backed up. All right, I'm not interested that you would believe in some concept of God that you have in your brain and you say, okay, I believe in God. That's not the question. The gospel comes along and says, I need you to believe in something specific about him. God actually came down in the person of Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life in your place because you could never live that life. Religion will tell you that you could live that life. Build your way up to God. Be a good person. Do these pilgrimages. Pray these prayers. Go to church. Give money. That's all religion. Build, climb the mountain, climb the mountain, climb the mountain. The gospel says you are so messed up that God had to climb down the mountain to come and get you. That's the point of the gospel. He had to live a perfect life in your place because you could never live that life. You could never earn your own salvation. And you try and you try and you try by performance. You try to be a good mother and maybe God will love you because you're a good mother. You've completely inverted the reality of the gospel. He doesn't love you because you're a good mother. He doesn't love you because of your good works. He loves you based on his good works for you, not your good works for him. And so Jesus comes and he takes the wrath of God on himself. He dies as a substitute for your sin instead of you, for you, and because of you, and then rises again to give you life. 
That's the reality of the gospel. I'm not asking you whether you believe in God generically. When I get to speak at conferences, I get in front of leaders, and one of the things I challenge them on is, is your actual ministry gospel-centered, not just God-centered? Meaning, I could sing half the songs we sing in church sometimes in a Buddhist temple. Because it's just about God. Generic, like how he's helping me through stuff. And the gospel is about Jesus specifically. What he did, his blood atoned for your sin. So here's the reality. Some of you, 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 re- you read your Bible and the problem is you read it like it's about you. And if you read the Bible as if it's about you, then you're gonna get it wrong because the reality is the Bible's about Jesus. And so if you read the Bible, if it's about you, you're gonna sit with your coffee in the morning and be like, I wanna be a good person, I wanna do good things. And so the Bible's about me. But the reality is, like when, when I... When I um, put my kids to bed and I read them the Noah story. It's fascinating. So take the Noah story, for example. We can read it as if it's about religion and being a good person. Be like Noah, right? Half the sermons I heard when I first walked into the church, be like Noah, be like David, be like Abraham. I'm like, have you ever looked into these guys' lives? Abraham, uh, one writer I was reading pointed out the fact that Abraham pimped out his wife twice. And he said, you couldn't even be uh, on the parking team in my church if you did that. Noah, Noah, have you read the Noah? Noah was a disaster, a total drunken, naked disaster. Be like Noah. Listen, here's what the Noah story is about. I read it to my kids. It's fascinating. It's a story that's become cool among kids because it's a story about God killing kids, right? <laughs> like literally, he just, he kills every, happy Mother's Day, by the way. Uh, <laughs> He just kills the whole world except eight people. God drowns everybody, kills everybody. Somehow it's just become a kid's story. All right, my kids are in bed. Ooh, and then God killed all the children. Daddy, thank you. Good night. All right, it's because there's animals around and boats and, you know, kids love that. But here's the thing. What's the Noah story about? It's about the fact that God brings judgment on the world and then he hangs a rainbow up in the sky. We're like, oh, it's so cute, a rainbow. It's colors, it's nice. The reality of what that story is, in the Hebrew, it's a war bow. And it means that God fired down arrows on the world and then he hung up his war bow in the sky to say, I'm not gonna bring judgment down on you anymore, but where's the war bow, war bow painted? It's actually pointed up into the heavens to basically say, listen, I'm done this, but I'm gonna point it into myself because one day I'm gonna come down and actually take my own wrath upon myself for you. That's how you read the Bible. If you read the Bible as if it's about you, you're gonna go wrong every time. Because you often tell, so here's my fear. My fear is that you're so close to actually being right about something, but the realities are very far off. Like when I was in, um, when I was in, uh, uh, I was visiting my friend, I was actually doing a conference for him, and he put me up in this hotel, and I sort of brought my family, and uh, we went down, and there was this pool in the hotel, and it had one of those, you're sitting at a hotel with a pool, and it's got like the, the, the sand part that kind of goes into the water, right? So there's like, a, there's like a beach in a pool. So you're like sitting on the beach. So I'm like, oh, I love sitting on sand versus on concrete, like tanning and just chilling, reading a book. So my family's like, oh, we're done for the day. We're going to go up to our room. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go down and just chill. And whatever. okay, great. So I go down day one. And I pull all my stuff up on this little sand, beachy part of the pool. Get my little towel, put my drink, get my Bible, my book, and I'm just reading three, four hours. There's, you know, kids, and they back away, and I'm just in the zone. 
Day two, same thing. I'm like, oh, I love this little spot. My family's like, oh, we're going to stay up here. We've got some shopping to do. Okay, cool. So I go down the sand, chill on the sand. Day three, sand, two, three hours. My family finally comes down day three. My wife walks up to me. She goes, what are you doing? I'm like, what? She goes, didn't you read the sign, bro? I look over and there's a sign. It says, uh, only children allowed. All right. I wondered why, like, like for three days, I was the perv on the beach, all right? <laughs> I'm just like, I wonder why there's no kids around, all right? They're like, like scurrying back to their mom. I'm like, come on, kid. <laughs> My point is I was so close to being accurate, but I was actually very far off. And that's how some of you live your lives. You're so close to actually having gospel-centeredness in your life, but you're actually quite far off because you, you're not, your life is about God. It's not about the person and the work of Jesus yet. It's like an adventure. Uh, church to me, oftentimes as a pastor, I, it's like an adventure in missing the point. It's like I preach these sermons and people leave and they say, okay, pastor, this is what I got out of it. I got to try to do better. And I'm like, wait, what? And they're like, I know, I'm just going to be a good person and then God's going to accept me. I'm like, I just literally said for 45 minutes, that's all wrong. That Jesus was a good person. It's like an adventure and missing the point. It's like you're so, like I had my, um, we went to Disneyland uh, a year or so ago and my 12-year-old wanted to go on a ride and she's like, hey dad, can we just go on this ride? And I'm like, "Uh, no, it's a two hour, this is not a joke, two hour and 45 minute wait. And I'm like, I'm not going on that ride. And she's like, come on, dad, please, please, please. And then it dawned on me. I'm like, here's the thing. I'm going to be a good parent right now. I'm going to exemplify good parenting so that she's a good mom one day, right? Like that was my, so I'm like, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll show her sacrifice. So this is, you know, many of our lives. We're like, this is good parenting. So I'm like, okay, honey, this is what I'm going to do. I will wait in line for two hours and 45 minutes. Then I will text you and then you can come join me. She's like, okay, dad, thanks, runs off. Two hours, 45 minutes later, I I sit there. My phone runs out of battery, so I'm just sitting there, like what people used to do, like just sit, like just thinking about considering things. I don't know what I was doing for two hours, and then she shows up. Hey, dad, and and I'm hugging her. I'm like, yes, and I looked at her, and I said, see, one day you will do this for your kids. That was the big kind of teachable moment for me, and then she, she goes, no, I won't. My husband will. wrong with these ladies like what how how young do you women learn this by the way just like I'm gonna marry some fool all right that's what she took out of that day all right that four girls got together and convinced her dumb father to go sit in line that was that was the lesson learned listen it's an adventure and missing the point man and some of you are actually you're on an adventure and you still don't have the gospel right you're still trying to earn it You're still trying to perform for him. And here's why the gospel is important. Here's why understanding the core of your being, that you are judged not by your works, but by the works of Jesus for you on the cross and in his perfect life, rather than what you do, it changes your life because it makes you stop trying to perform in every form in your life. It takes you and makes you realize the mistakes you've made in your life God can use you even in spite of them. I told the guys yesterday about the worst day of my life. You know what the worst day of my life was? It was, as a, as a pastor, was the day I told a woman that her husband was dead and I had the wrong guy. 
What? I actually walked into a hospital, saw a dead man. I had visited him earlier in the week, took a few days off, called the office on the way to visit him again, and no one picked up the phone, so I just went to the same room, walked in, saw a dead guy, and I'm like, oh, snap. And then a nurse turned me around and said, what are you doing here? I'm like, uh, I'm here to visit him. And she, and she says, oh, he's dead. Now, at that point, if you're just getting new to this, when someone says he's dead, ask who? <laughs> Which I didn't do because I was new. And I'm like, okay, well, guess it's the same guy. Guess it's Joe. So I go back to the office. I tell everybody in the, in the, in the, in the all the secretaries, all the admin staff, he, Joe's dead. And they're like, okay. Two hours later, his wife comes by the office holding a sandwich, taking it to Joe. Says, I got to bring him his lunch. Secretary comes to my office. She's like, I think she thinks he's still alive. I'm like, send her back. All right. She comes back. I sit her down. I go into an office and I say, Joe's dead. At which point she passes out in my arms. I put her on a couch and we mourn the death of Joe for 45 minutes. 45 minutes. We talk about his life. We talk about everything about him. I walk back out, I hear them over, I hear the secretary's talking about a different hospital. I'm like, hey, Joe's still in this hospital. No, 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 they moved him to a different hospital on Saturday. I'm like, what? Call that hospital now. So they call him up. Hey, what's Joe doing? Waiting for his lunch. I'm like, oh my gosh. So I go back into the room and I'm like, hey, what's up? Remember that thing we were talking about? I was just playing. And she's like, no, you know, don't worry. I'm going to see him again, you know, in the resurrection. I'm like, actually, you're going to see him before that. Uh, because Joe's not actually dead. Now, listen, that's the worst. How none of you, none of you can even come close to that. Anytime I'm around the fire and people are like, let me tell you an embarrassing story. I'm like, I got to go dead last. No one's going to beat this because then the night's just closed. It's done. All right, now, listen. Here's the reality. That event happened six months before I planted a church as a 29-year-old kid. And Satan used that in my life. And he said to me, you should not plant a church because you're going to hurt a lot of people. You're playing dress up. You're not a real pastor. You're pretending to be a pastor. But the reality is, you're going to derail a lot of people's lives. So you should not plant this church and you should not move forward in ministry. And I needed people to do what? come around me and preach the gospel to me, which was that God is going to use you not because of you, but in spite of you and not based on your good work, but his good work for you. So stand up and go forward and plant your church. Jesus worked for you. The father declared on Jesus, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He hadn't even done anything yet in his ministry. He had done nothing. It's not based on what you do. So all of your mistakes, all the trash, all the secret sins in this room that the people beside you don't even know about, God still loves you. You are his beloved in whom he is well pleased and you're in Christ. Then he takes you out and he does something with your life you never could have imagined because the gospel is true, not because religion is true. The last thing, you have the how, you have the what. The way he ends his passage is with the why. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. If you've got a Bible, um, just underline the word brokenhearted, and then to proclaim liberty to the captives, underline that word, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. It's fascinating that your, your 
what your, your, your why in life, your why is to go get bound people and set them free. That's your why. Not more square footage, a nice boat, a vacation, more success. It's not your why in life. If you do those things, you will shrivel. Your why is go get bound people and set them free. That's your mission in life. When you're 95 years old and you're sitting on your deathbed or whatever, what are you going to look back on? What brought meaning and purpose to your life? He says, go get captive people, people who are in prison, emotionally, spiritually, and set them free. That's your job, which means your life. Here's why we don't do it. It means your life's going to start to look really messy because people who are bound and captive tend to be messy people. They don't vote like you, dress like you, talk like you, think like you, but the gospel calls you to go to them, which means your life's going to get messy. Your church is going to become messy. Bound people start showing up. Captive people start showing up. This is when the church gets interesting, man. Right? I, when I was telling the guys yesterday, when I showed up to church, my whole life, I'd just been reading the Bible. So when I showed up, there was an expectation of how raw and messy and real the church would be. Like, I thought it was going to be bound. I thought it was going to be, I was sitting out just reading the Bible. It's like everyone gets their head cut off. Everyone gets pulled apart by lions. Because the book of Hebrews says, the world is not worthy of these people. I thought that's what the church was. It was going to be rough, rugged, just rah, we're singing about that. You know, Jesus in Matthew, in Matthew 9, he says, you are sheep among wolves. Right? Sheep among what? You ever seen what a wolf does to a sheep? Jesus goes, I have a wonderful plan for your life. rip you apart eat every part of you alive I was like this is what Christianity is about man I I expected to walk into the church and just be be blood just be like flares and whips and sit down shut up we don't know if we're going to survive the death the death I thought it was going to be crazy Sheep. <laughs> and I walked in the door, the first church I ever walked into, and there was hummingbirds sucking pollen out of flowers on the worship slides. <laughs> in plastic greenery all over the stage. Everyone was so nice. Welcome, 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 welcome. Want to come over after? Want to come for a potluck? <laughs> talking about? We're singing prom songs to Jesus. Hey, running in the fields. When I planted my church, um, I wanted to reach guys like me, unchurched, de-churched skeptics. So we start this church 50 people in a gym after our 16 people grew out of my bedroom. Uh, And uh, we start this church in this gym, and uh, I want to start seeing raw, real people come to Jesus. Like not, you know, people who have arrived. I want to go after the, 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 the captive. And so I start to preach, and church starts to grow. Like stuff's crazy. Like, like we got in this gym and it was so packed, we had to do the dreaded like two service thing. 
which is now we're going to have to go to two services. And when you're a church plant and everyone's kind of been there, you know, you know, roughing it out for a year or two, it's like, we can't go to two services. And actually a woman walked up to me and she's like, we can't go to two services because this will be the, this will be the nail in our coffin, she said. And I said, well, why would it be the nail in our coffin? And she's like, because we need to be one community. I need to see Joanne and have her over for lunch after church. And, you know, everybody's got to, you know, be one and it's going to kill all that. The church is going to die. So I get, the next week I got up and preached a sermon. And I said, the sermon was, listen, we didn't start a church so that you could get more friends. We started a church because every day people like my own father die and go to hell without Jesus. So next week we're starting a second service. If you don't want to go, there's lots of churches in the area you could go to. We don't really care. We're starting a church service two services. And listen, the next week, and when you're 150 people, this was a big deal. The next week we grew by 50 people in a week. Well, she left. So 49 people (laughs) in a week. 49 people in a week we grew by just by going to two services. And here's what started to happen though. It's in Vancouver, we we, we started our church, this little cul-de-sac with all these $3 million homes everywhere. And the reason they chose that cul-de-sac was because it's quiet on the weekend. And we're in this little school and we start to flip services over and people are walking and people are parking their cars everywhere. And the reality was, I got a phone call one day from a guy and he's like, hey man, what what, what kind of church are you running there? Now I remember this was the, this was the, greatest day of my church planning career because people started to show up and I could tell they were Christians. And I was like, oh no, Christians are the worst. All right. <laughs> I, you could just tell, right? They like, walk in, they have like this, you know, this kind of demeanor about them. I'm like, oh no, here we go. All right. They're going to start asking all these crazy questions and they're going to have all these expectations and stuff. They're gonna, their life is just like, just being non-contributing zeros. All right. They show up, they consume and they leave. They rate sermons and worship out of 10. Like get out of my life. So I don't want these people. And I'm going after, and so you can tell. And so the greatest phone call I got was this guy calls me up Monday morning. What kind of church are you running there? What kind of people you have? I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, uh, there was a guy who parked his pickup truck, his wheels on my front lawn. And when I walked out, I said, dude, get your truck off my lawn. He got out of his truck and he had his little family with him, two little kids and his wife, And he looked at me and he gave me the finger and said, F you, I'm going to church, all right? And I'm like, boom, all right, that's legit. (laughs) Greatest day of my life to that point. I mean, I'm sorry, I'll talk to him. That's terrible witness. Your job is to do what? Set people free captives, bound people. The reality is, my life, I mean, I had guys walk up to my wife when we were dating and say, you need to break up with Mark. There was a Sunday where the pastor preached a sermon that you cannot be unequally yoked. I'd already been a Christian for a few years. (laughs) And a guy walked up to my wife and said, you need to break up with Mark. She said, why? He said, because you're unequally yoked. He's not a Christian. Well, why is he not a Christian? Because I saw him smoking. So I smoked since I was in grade eight. I love smoking. Uh, I would say, when I arrived at church, I didn't really understand. Like, I, I ride a, you know, I have my, like, big baggy skateboard pants and a chain on my wallet, you know, because I didn't want anyone to steal my five bucks. And, uh, 
and I would like sit outside in the back smoking my cigarettes before I went in and it was this big window. I didn't know it was the lead pastor's office and the whole worship team was in there before the service. I'm like, right? And they're like praying for me, you know? So he's like, I saw Mark smoking and she's like, well, smoking what? And he's like, well, cigarettes. And she's like, well, it's better than what he used to smoke. Because here's the thing, you look around here, don't judge people where they're at. Judge people where they came from. Judge people where they came from. Can you believe what that girl was wearing? I can't believe it. Did she have clothes on? (laughs) Praise God. This is movement. This is sanctification, baby, that's the point. Brokenhearted. Poor, captives, bound. Your life defined by those people? Now here is where I want to end this for you. You know who those people are? You. We're the bound ones. We're the captive ones. We're the disasters. We are the ones. Not the person beside you. Not the girl you saw in the parking lot. Not your neighbor. You. You're the one in need of the grace of Jesus in your life in a way that you could never understand. You have to be the recipient first before you're going to be effective at reaching anybody. Is that what you understand about yourself? Or is there so much pride and so much ego in your life? Because here's the thing. God wants to actually set you free, but free from something insidious, which is your, your feelings, about who you are. You feel, see, here's my, my, right now, if you're sitting here and you're bound and you're captive, it doesn't mean that you feel that way. You got money in the bank, the kids are doing good, your marriage is doing good, the career is doing good. I don't feel like I'm lost, but that's not what I'm asking you. Because sometimes your feelings are the worst, Soren Kierkegaard said, your feelings should be the worst part of your slavery. You get bound to feelings so much so that you're not actually in reality anymore because feelings are a very scary thing. How you feel. Be very careful. Listen, this is why I don't do weddings anymore. You know why I don't do weddings anymore? Because I'm sick of why. Listen, hey kids. Oh, we're all gathered here. We're in our nice suits and you're telling each other you love each other. Awesome. We're so surprised, by the way, that you love each other on day one. You've known each other for nine months. We're all here in our nice clothes and now you're going to, oh, you've written your own vows. It's so beautiful. You're both poets. And I'm sitting, oh, hey, Tracy, I'm marrying you. I wrote a poem for you. T. Trustworthy. (laughs) And I'm just sitting there, oh my gosh, here we go. R. Respectful. Anybody, any fool can start something. Question is how you end. See, I want to talk to you 15 years from now. I want to talk to you three kids later, cereal in the hair, she hasn't touched you in two months. She hasn't come out of the jogging pants in a month. That's what I want to talk, bro. I want to talk when you go to the grocery store and that girl in aisle four gives you the little eyes. She's wearing real pants. There's makeup on. She's vibing to me. And the butterflies in my stomach, they're like moving. 
Be very careful how you feel because that can derail your life. You covenant your something that, that transcends feelings is the only way through. And it's the only way to be free from your bondage that you don't even know you have. Father, it is my hope that you, by the power of your spirit, could burn through the bondage and the captive realities of all of us in this room to some capacity. Isaiah gives this great vision that the gospel is the only thing that sets us truly free. I pray that is true about each one of us, so much so that we are then empowered to live a life of mission with the very short time that you've given us on this planet that there is an urgency in our life to take the reality of the gospel and let it change not what we do, but what we want to do that ultimately sets us free to live for your glory and the good of people. In your great name we pray, amen.